This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today I'm talking with Rob Effers. Rob is founder and CEO of Efforts Federal Advisors and former vice president of Van Skoik and Associates. Rob focuses exclusively on helping companies expand their presence in the federal marketplace. Over the course of 35 years of his industry career, Mr. Efforts has provided outsourced business development and lobbying services to public sector sales. Rob has worked with big organizations uh, and leaders in the federal market to include MicroFocus, um, NetApp, Cisco, VMware, Veritas, Iron Mountain, Lookout, and Symantec. Rob, first off, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Aileen. It's a pleasure and honor to be here today. Rob, let's start by talking about you and the way that you see leadership and what your leadership style is. What is your leadership style? Well, my leadership style is um, very focused on achieving results, first and foremost, um, within a, a set uh, time limit. Um, and so the, the characteristics of my style include uh, selfless, growth-oriented, visionary, um, uh, very uh, aware of the external environment, um, transparent in terms of uh, goal setting and understanding uh, why those goals are important, and um, last but not least, collaborative. So you, you work a lot on Capitol Hill, um, a, a lot of leaders and that are elected leaders. Um, you know, there definitely are two sides of the aisle. Uh, do you alter your style depending upon who you're working with or what side of the aisle they are? I don't, um, primarily because my focus is on uh, federal procurement and uh, the context for procurement is good government and good government is a nonpartisan um, agenda uh, that both Republicans and Democrats, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, uh, share. So uh, my goal is when I'm advocating on behalf of a client um, to play it down the middle. Uh, that's not to say that uh, from a, a political campaign perspective, um, that I uh, don't support uh, both, uh, that I actually do support both Republicans and Democrats, consistent with that overall strategy. Um, so I, I very much try and uh, keep it down the middle, keep it nonpartisan, and uh, we can get into that a little bit in terms of how, uh, from the standpoint of federal IT, um, the, the uh, goal of good government and ensuring that taxpayer dollars are spent wisely to enable federal agencies to get the IT related tools they need. That's, uh, that's a, uh, an objective shared by uh, all lawmakers. Um, and it's very, very gratifying to see that. That's good to hear because if you pick up the newspaper or watch the news these days, that's not the reflection that you see in, in the headlines. Um, have you ever faced any obstacles or leadership challenges um, you know, where maybe you didn't get uh, greeted with that approach and, and how'd you get through it? Well, um, my first uh, response to that is in relation to probably my biggest leadership platform, which was the president of the George Washington University Alumni Association, which has over 200,000 members. 
And I went through the ranks as an alumni volunteer, first uh, within the business school um, and becoming president of the business school alumni association and then the overall university alumni association, which included law and engineering and medical and all of the great uh, schools at GW. And one of my uh, projects uh, that I was passionate about was improving how the university uh, serviced the career development needs of alumni, uh, folks who've been out in the, in the workforce for a while. And the university uh, uh, career office, if you will, was uh, very entrenched uh, and really not all that interested in servicing alumni related needs. And I have to say, I have the utmost respect for sales professionals selling into a university environment because uh, you know I deal with bureaucracy every day on behalf of my clients in terms of the federal government. But I, I, I think the uh, level of bureaucratic decision-making and entrenchment in a university is an order of magnitude greater than uh, a federal agency. But nonetheless, um, I was able through collaboration with the Board of Trustees, with my um, uh, student vol uh, alumni volunteers on the uh, GW Alumni Association and others to eventually develop the business case for why the university needed to have a separate career center focused on alumni needs. And that uh, became uh, very, very important to, to the university to the extent that uh, entities like US News and World Report now rank universities on how effective they are in placing their students and alumni in the workforce. And so with that kind of argument, I was able to break through uh, a lot of inertia, it took many, many years um, until finally uh, the Dean of the Business School, then uh, David Fowler, a, a managing partner at uh, KPMG, um, agreed to do it. And the most gratifying moment was during the dedication of that facility, uh, when the facility was named after Dean Fowler, he turned to me and said, and if there's one person in this room that should take credit for this uh, career center happening, it's, uh, it was Robert Everest. And so uh, that taught me about persistence, about collaboration, about creativity, and uh, continuing to uh, engage even though the, uh, the inertia of a large bureaucracy was sometimes very frustrating. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Rob Efferis. Rob is founder and CEO of Efferis Advisors and former vice president of Van Soik and Associates. Rob, um, what obstacles and challenges did you encounter on a personal level that you had to overcome in order to become an effective leader? You clearly are very effective at leading people through uh, some pretty challenging issues and finding a way to, to make it work. I think the most important um, challenge that I addressed was aligning uh, what I believe to be an important uh, objective of whatever situation um, I was in where my leadership skills were uh, in demand um, with the uh, environment uh, in which uh, that objective needed to, to take place. Uh, you know, I am, um, I am a more of an introvert than an extro extrovert. Um, and uh, the notion of uh, becoming very external focused and becoming uh, much more interpersonal uh, in terms of collaborating and seeking to persuade uh, colleagues and others uh, about the worthiness of a specific objective um, was a, a, a key challenge for me in an area of growth uh, that I've, I've learned to uh, appreciate. 
Another was uh, public speaking. Uh, you know, originally I, uh, I was a little hesitant uh, to uh, get in front of a large group and uh, back to the GW story that evolved to the point when I addressed the graduating class one year of uh, 25,000 people on the ellipse in Washington DC and um, if I ever was going to have stage fright that would be that would have been the moment but I didn't I was able to execute so those are some examples of personal challenges that I was able to overcome. Wow, that's I, I watched you speak. That's good to hear. So, um, how did you uh, approach getting over that? I mean, was it just practice and persistence? I mean, what what advice would you have to somebody else who has that challenge? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, have no fear. Um, you have to get up and um, just uh, believe in yourself. Believe in the message that you're delivering. That's one point. Another is preparation. I get most of my anxiety in uh, preparing for a speech rather than giving it. And so I work through that in terms of, uh, you know, starting weeks before an event and gather my material and know it backwards and forwards so that when I do get up uh, in front of a group, it's, uh, it just is second nature and I can achieve a flow that I wouldn't if I'm reading off a slide or if I'm thinking about how I'm looking. And then the, the most important thing for me is to bring a sense of humor um, to the event. I always like to start with uh, some, some humorous anecdotes. Um, it helps to relax the audience. It helps to relax me. And then to sprinkle uh, that level of humor throughout the presentation. And uh, now I really enjoy it. And it's something that uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of myself in terms of uh, where, I, where I was and now where I am today. I'm speaking with Rob Efferis. Efferis is founder and CEO of Efferis Federal Advisors and former vice president of Ansoic and Associates. After break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, and communication and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Rob Efferis, founder and CEO of Efferis and Advisors former Vice President of Vance Koikin Associates. Rob, what is the imp most important type of decision you can make as a leader of an organization? I mean, there's different types of decisions out there. How do you prioritize when you're leading a, a large team? My, my sense is that uh, leading on a strategy um, is the most uh, important objective, and that is to you know, identify goals and objectives that are relevant to the organization's uh, goals and objectives, and to incorporate those into a strategy that not only contains those top line elements, but a plan uh, to get there, and uh, to then use that strategy as a means to level set um, with the uh, team that I'm working with, and to um, get feedback on the strategy, put it up very much as a, as a straw man uh, to be picked apart. You know, I mentioned um, uh, a selfless approach to leadership. The notion of creating a strategy and having it picked apart, um, in my mind, reflects a bit of humility in that, you know, when I do that, I don't have any pride of authorship. I, I tell the team to tear it apart. Uh, because through that process, you get stakeholder buy-in, and then when it comes time to execute, everybody's on the same page in terms of uh, what's tr uh, uh, the goal of what uh, is being accomplished and the steps to get there. So, you know, I, 
I, I love your approach, uh, the collaboration, and, and you work a lot with, you know, um, our elected officials on Capitol Hill and, and major policy advisors, but I don't, I don't necessarily, the, the headlines don't necessarily reflect that kind of collaboration um, and picking apart and, and having, you know, a, a, a many views representative in, in some of the things that are happening today. Um, what is your thought about, you know, the leadership right now on Capitol Hill and, and how could they improve to adopt some of the things you just said? Well, um, the broad response to that, Aileen, is that in the public management space, uh, the ability to um, um, develop strategies, to come up with execution plans, um, to achieve big things is, in my opinion, way more complicated and way more difficult than in a private organization. And one of the uh, topics I hope we get into is the difference between great leaders in the public sector versus the private sector. Because uh, what you see on Capitol Hill today, you know, is gridlock. The grid gridlock reflects the composition of the Congress, which reflects the, comp the, uh, the divergent viewpoints uh, amongst the elect electorate within the United States. And the bottom line is the our country is divided. Uh, and, and it's a challenging time. And so it becomes very, very difficult. And as somebody who's been watching Congress for almost 40 years, um, I have a lot of admiration, um, not only for the members on both sides who are determined and to, to achieve their party's objectives, but most importantly, and particularly in light of January 6th, the underlying, underlying structure of the Constitution and how it gave uh, equal powers to the three branches of government, and how by doing so, it uh, ensured that not one branch would become dominant over the other two. And uh, there's a beauty in how for over 230 years, that constitutional guideline has uh, worked and uh, maintained its relevance uh, even today. So it's a much, much more difficult process to do what I said in terms of develop a strategy and execute um, in a divided government. That's just the way it is and likely will be for uh, years to come. So let's, let's take a, a, a turn in, in our conversation and let's talk about the difference between leadership uh, and private sector versus public sector. What is the difference? Well, I'd like to put that in the context of one of the leaders that I've admired um, um, since working at NASA, and that's uh, former NASA Administrator uh, James Beggs, a Naval Academy graduate, uh, Harvard Business School graduate, um, extensive experience uh, in both industry, where he was a, a, a line manager for Howard Hughes, uh, during uh, the declining years of Howard Hughes and managed uh, Hughes's aircraft and aviation-related interests, uh, was also a senior executive uh, with General Dynamics, but then served a couple of stints in the Department of Transportation, uh, as well as becoming a NASA administrator. And his uh, approach to leadership, I feel, recognized the inherent differences between a public and a private manager, specifically um, one example would be the Congress and having to, as a NASA administrator, for example, constantly go up and back and forth to Congress. And I was working as a, a legislative affairs official uh, during that time frame. So I saw these comings and goings where 
you're going to the Congress as a board of directors to seek investments and approvals um, that um, you know, are, are essential in the case of NASA for its mission. Contrast that with a, a private sector executive, which is focused, yes, on a board of directors, but in terms of uh, a business strategy, uh, the CEO of a company has much, much more autonomy and is able to, working with a CFO and a board of directors, um, come up with business strategies that are, uh, I believe, easier to execute as compared to a public sector manager, a NASA administrator that not only has the Congress, but has the Office of Management and Budget always saying no when you want to spend money. You have a White House which has uh, political um, uh, objectives that need to be met. Not to mention, in, in the case of NASA, 20,000 or so workforce with highly decentralized field centers which have their own agendas. It's just a much, much more complex environment. And this is why, even after all of these years being in Washington, I have the utmost respect for uh, uh, government professionals and civil servants because they have a difficult job. And the folks coming in at the top uh, realistically only have a couple of years to achieve their objectives and that's another constraint uh, in terms of you know trying to jam um, you know four or six years of accomplishments into two or three years it's a tough job do you think the recent events on Capitol Hill had some good and bad ship uh, bad leadership examples out there and if so what are some examples maybe of good leadership uh, that handled some of these challenges well, I have to say that um, uh, I'm going to address it in a bipartisan fashion. And uh, one example of good leadership uh, uh, came uh, uh, from a, a, an old friend of mine, Jerry Connolly, congressman uh, from Northern Virginia, who shared with me uh, his experience on the floor of the House on January 6th when the, uh, the riots were occurring in the building and he was uh, literally five feet away from folks banging on the door, trying to get into the House floor to upset the uh, electoral uh, certification process. And I asked uh, Congressman Connolly whether he was scared, and he said, I, I wasn't scared. I wasn't fearful. Rather, I was determined not to let the rioters disrupt the constitutionally mandated process. And that determination in my mind, which uh, it wasn't only Congressman Connolly, but others, um, uh, was uh, very admirable on my part. On the Republican side, I have to say that uh, what Congresswoman Cheney did uh, in terms of after the uh, January 6th riots, uh, condemning um, uh, leaders who uh, incited uh, the violence um, uh, across the board and stood up to her own party. Uh, in my mind, that was leadership personified. And you know, it's, it's easy to talk about those moments, but those were clearly moments where uh, 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 leaders uh, stand up, uh, it's their time and they make a stand and they're willing to risk everything for what they believe and their principles. Uh, and so in my mind, that was a great example. At this stage of your career, what is your thoughts of managing versus leading? I mean, there's some examples of people who are just managing the situation versus leading through it. Well, I would say uh, 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 leadership, it, 
leadership means it's a, a very exciting topic. That's why I'm so excited to be on this show because it means so many things to so many uh, different people. But in my mind, um, leadership is about uh, charting a course based on a vision and a commitment um, um, in support of uh, those aspects. Um, whereas management is a little more tactical and uh, focused more on day-to-day -day versus year-to-year. -year. And another aspect, but their similarities, involves followership. You know, the extent to which a leader uh, within an agency can chart a course um, has to consider uh, the extent to which the uh, uh, workforce uh, follows that person's lead. Whereas in management, that, that need for followership is not, I believe, not as great to the extent that a manager is typically a, a senior person, has subordinates working for him or him or her, and uh, those subordinates are uh, somewhat obligated to follow that man manager's uh, direction uh, in support of their own individual job performance. So um, uh, those are my uh, init initial thoughts. Coming up next, we'll talk about leaders and trying to lead through change. I'm speaking with Rob Effers, founder and CEO of Effers Advisors. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Rob Effers, founder and CEO of Effers Advisors and former vice president of Vanskoik and Associates. Rob, getting organizations to adopt change are always one of the biggest challenges. How do you think today's elected officials need to approach this time and get the organization that they rep, the people that they represent and the organizations that they lead to adopt change? Well, I think a key part of it in the public uh, sector arena is uh, consensus building. Um, and um, part of that consensus building involves identifying the problem that is uh, uh, trying to be fixed and you look at efforts on the part of Congress to try and get federal agencies to pay more attention to modernizing their legacy systems. Um, we've seen uh, in, the, in the aftermath of COVID, agencies like IRS and SBA struggle with their COVID-19 response efforts due to legacy infrastructure. But this is a problem that Congress and uh, the White House and the General Accountability Office have been uh, highlighting for years and years and years. And sometimes in the public arena, it takes that long for a consensus to uh, emerge. And I would say, you know, Congress has a role of shining a light on uh, uh, concerns and dysfunctions and challenges within federal agencies that are limiting their effectiveness in meeting taxpayer needs, whether those needs involve uh, stimulus funding and, and relief checks or uh, getting uh, social security or Medicaid benefits and the like. And the, uh, it's taken a long time, but I believe we're at an inflection point as it relates to IT modernization because both the Congress and agency leaders and now the incoming Biden administration all agree that something must be done. And as I said earlier, this is an area of bipartisan interest. And so it's likely that we're going to really start to see some results and some investment. 
know, you and I have both been um, working around the Beltway for um, several decades. And my observation is sometimes it, it has to get to a point where it's almost broken before action is taken. Now that, you know, we've hit that, that kind of point of inflection where, you know, the, the obvious, uh, you know, the leaders uh, within organizations, like you said, it's very complex to actually implement change because sometimes you don't have the power. You have to, to, to go to others to try to, and it's much more complex than maybe in commercial uh, world. What do you think is the first things that uh, an agency needs to do to be more resilient, to be able to face challenges like we face with the pandemic? Well, you know, the reality is that left to its own devices uh, without any oversight, um, an agency's uh, primary motivation, including those working for it, is self-preservation. And sometimes that self-preservation um, overlooks some of the um, uh, inadequacies uh, within their department. Uh, and IT is one of those where it frequently operates in a stovepipe. Um, it really only gets attention when something breaks, as you rightly point out. And it's just um, something that requires external oversight. And whether it's a headline in the Washington Post, whether it's a critical inspector general report, or a critical uh, report from the uh, General Accountability Office or a hearing where a head of an agency gets hauled up um, to uh, testify about uh, why his agency's uh, mission critical systems were hacked. And we're seeing this now with solar winds, which is having a dramatic effect on uh, the cyber landscape. But uh, you talk about congressional oversight on these kinds of matters. Um, the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, also known as FATARA, uh, had a scorecard, and the scorecard rated agency, a CFO Act agency performance on how well they were managing their IT systems, whether the CIO had a direct line of reporting to the agency leader, uh, whether an agency knew what uh, hardware and software were operating on their uh, networks. And when uh, an agency gets a D on a report card and the agency leader has to go up to the hill and explain why it got a D on a report card, that creates major ripple effects within an agency focused on self-preservation, yes, but when their agency leader is embarrassed uh, in the Congress and that's reported in the press, that gets more attention, I would say, than a political appointee uh, who's only gonna be in an agency for two or three years coming out with a policy that the rest of the institution says, we're gonna wait them out. And so I think it's those external forces, Aileen, that really make a difference. With the advent of, of cloud, um, you know, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, um, your IT systems really can make a difference of being able to be resilient or not. The underlying part that all of this is driven from is data. And we know that agencies have mounds of data. Now managing that data in a way that helps protect the data about the people that um, they have the information on is extremely important. Being able to take that data and be able to react quickly so that they can be effective and efficient and supplying you know, uh, the proper equipment that to, to, for an example, in the pandemic, react and protect our, our citizens. 
what do you think the the country should be doing right now to help you know like you said sometimes things like IT systems can be overlooked well how can we jumpstart this to to get ahead so we can be more resilient to face pandemics uh, like what we have just recently faced well, uh, that's a great question, Aileen, because it is so topical that it was reported a day or so ago when the White House rolled out uh, its COVID response team and they did a, a broadcast. Uh, and a key element of that discussion involved the fact that the data relating to the uh, penetration of the vaccine into under-serviced uh, um, uh, populations around the country uh, is a key gap. And that, I believe, relates to, in part, the fact that the IT systems uh, that not only at the federal level, but at the state level, have been suffering from years of underinvestment, uh, such that the ability to harness the data that resides in those state-based IT systems uh, and leverage it to um, guide the performance of the federal government in how it's improving the vaccine distribution and, and uh, getting more shots in arms um, is a key need. And, you know, uh, more broadly, um, the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning to uh, better enable agency decision making is on the agenda right now uh, of Congress. Uh, there was a provision in the latest National Defense Authorization Act um, to require federal agencies to come up with uh, AI uh, use cases involving government data to enable agencies like the Department of Defense to met better manage their finance systems, their acquisition systems, their HR systems, et cetera. And so there's a recognition that technology can help this problem. And I think we're gonna be seeing more and more emphasis on data management. You know, you've got chief data officers required uh, to be appointed in uh, all CFO Act agencies. Not all of them are, but that CDO function is gonna become increasingly important to harness the data not only in support of agency decision-making, but to better enable that, the accessibility of that data to folks in the public uh, from a research standpoint, et cetera. So great question. So the Evidence uh, Act requires uh, chief data officers. Um, however, you know, data can be used for good and data can, can sway something if it's not complete, if you're not fully informed of the data. Um, you know, if, if it's looking at the wrong set of data, it can actually create bias. Um, how do you think agency heads can be better at, you know, creating a framework that can help them, you know, harvest the right or be totally informed on why and what data they're using to help make more informed decisions? Well, um, agencies um, are in the process, I believe, of uh, each uh, establishing guidelines for their own use of et the ethical use of artificial intelligence as it relates to those kind of data management challenges that you reference. And so I think first and foremost, there's got to be com a commitment uh, related to the ethical use of artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning. And then beyond that, I think, you know, in agencies like uh, NIH and NSF and other scientific-based 
agencies, you've got that scientific methodology and things like peer review to ensure that uh, agency data is used appropriately. Uh, but it's a key challenge. And that's why I think uh, companies that have data security products and are focusing on ensuring uh, the, the sanctity of government managed data are gonna have a great upside in the months and years to come. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Rob Effers. Rob is the founder and CEO of Effers Advisors and former vice president of Vanscoke and Associates. Next, we'll find out Rob's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Rob Efferis. Rob is the founder and CEO of Efferis and Federal Advisors and former Vice President of Vanscoyken Associates. Rob, um, you have uh, you have some incredible leadership stories. You know, have you've mentioned one leader back uh, as administrator of NASA, but are there other leaders in your background that really have inspired you and that you have modeled and, and become a better leader because you work with them? Uh, absolutely. I first like to talk about a, a leader that has inspired me from afar, and that's Elon Musk. Um, you know, he, uh, we share uh, interest in both uh, alternative uh, energy uh, as well as uh, space exploration. And Elon, uh, in my opinion, is a, a once-in-a-generation leader and one who happens to focus on both of the sectors that I'm very interested in. I, I happen to have owned a couple of Teslas, and so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that vehicle. But a couple of points about Elon. His uh, credo is failure is an option. And the notion of uh, incorporating failure uh, into a career path um, is something that I've been conscious of throughout my career. I, I have not as had much success in failing as uh, perhaps uh, Elon Musk, uh, but I think that's an important point to note. Another uh, credo of his is it's possible for ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And I think the notion of incorporating that credo into our everyday lives and the, no the notion that a leader has to be somebody in a, in a public realm uh, that's not the case in my opinion. I think we can all be leaders every day and incorporate leadership attributes into our uh, daily lives. Another leader that I'm working very, very closely with uh, is Craig Abod of Carasoft. He is, in my mind, the hardest working guy in the federal IT business. And you talk about a sales leader and what he's been able to accomplish um, in his career it's just uh, fascinating. Uh, 1,500 employees and uh, a very, very uh, large uh, base of vendor partners. Um, he's inspirational. And then the last leader I'd like to reference is a client. And that's a, a fellow by the name of Jim Dolce. And Jim uh, has had a long industry career. He is now the CEO of a mobile security company called Lookout. And what has most impressed me about Jim is his recognition that the millennial and general, uh, Generation Z uh, cohorts um, require a lot more communication than uh, the baby boomers. Uh, and he issues a weekly newsletter that breaks down um, the lookout corporate strategy and uh, what he's focused on in a way that everybody on his team 
the company has several hundred employees located around the world, that they understand every week what the corporate priorities are and are able to connect the dots between that corporate strategy and their day-to-day -day roles, whether they be in engineering or sales or legal or what have you. And in my mind, uh, that's, that's been very impressive, especially his insights as to how the younger generation communicates and needs to hear these messages, perhaps more so than their older uh, cohorts. You have uh, been in government relations for your entire career. Um, relations means that you have to build deep and trusting relationships. Have you, over the years, how have you approached that? Have you built a network? Uh, do you uh, partake in, in industry relations? I mean, how do you build this network and these deep relationships with people over years? Uh, one at a time. Um, I'm, I'm involved in a number of uh, industry trade associations, including the Professional Services Council, the Information Technology Industry Council, um, as well as uh, professional uh, uh, lobbying groups. And um, it, 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 it does, in my mind, come down to one at a time where you develop trusting relationships. You know, something that I try and live by all the time uh, in terms of my role as a government relations professional is putting the client's interest above, above my own uh, to convey to uh, uh, folks on the Hill and even in the executive branch, all sides of the issue that I'm discussing. So it's not a one-sided uh, story that the, the uh, staff member that's involved is not surprised uh, by finding something out after I leave uh, that I didn't disclose. And it's all about uh, developing trust and, um, uh, having integrity and <clears throat> uh, walking the walk and, and talking the talk. So what is a day in the life of, of, a, of a, a lobbyist slash government relations professional? Well, it's a lot of reading. Um, I, I receive um, literally overnight a, approximately 150 or 200 emails. Uh, some of those are from clients. Some of those are from various uh, subscription services that uh, I uh, part, uh, partake of. And um, so that's first and foremost, reading uh, several newspapers a, a day um, just to really understand uh, what's going on. And in addition to that, uh, a lot of uh, my work on behalf of public sector sales teams is uh, helping to develop strategies um, that align their sales organizations with uh, targeted opportunities, whether that's from a budgeting standpoint or whether it's from um, uh, down to the uh, procurement, specific, procurement specific angle. Um, and then a lot of it is contacts with uh, Hill staff. I was on a call yesterday with um, all of the staffers supporting the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, um, getting to know those folks, uh, getting them to trust that the messages I'm delivering are accurate and uh, present a, a a, a, a broad perspective on an issue, not just a narrow client-driven agenda. And um, uh, those are some of the, some of the angles that I, I use. So you, you do a lot of reading. Um, if you're a young person out there that would like to get more aware, where, where would you start to, to, to make your must-read list? Well, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. Um, and then uh, the uh, uh, Capitol Hill trade publications, Politico, Politico Roll Call, The Hill, 
uh, a new one I uh, commend to everybody called Punchbowl. Um, and then there are some su subscription services. I'm a big um, uh, supporter of Bloomberg government. Um, they do a really, really great job. And then uh, for more specific, uh, the Deltec of Win um, subscription is also uh, extremely helpful. And, um, you know, I would say blogs like this, um, you know, the popularity of blogs is ju uh, 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 has just been, uh, and podcasts has just been, uh, you know, overwhelming. And listening to these podcasts have, has become a, a key way of staying informed. So those are just some examples. You've had such a long, successful career path. It's truly inspirational. Any advice for somebody who would like to be, following your footsteps? Well, the first I would say is know thyself. Uh, when I came to Washington a long time ago, uh, I was lucky in that I understood that I wanted to be in a role of uh, the uh, helping business interact with government, uh, specifically from a sales perspective. And that business government relationship has always been a passion of mine and you know they say, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, part of that is knowing what you want to do and the types of organizations that you want to work for. That would be the first piece of advice. The second is don't be afraid to take risks. Uh, I think, you know, like the uh, members of Congress that stand up for what they believe in, sometimes at the risk of their careers, the 10 Republicans, who stood up after January 6th and condemned the rioters and, and, and the extent to which they were incited by our nation's leaders. Um, that took guts and, and a recognition that doing so may have imperiled their career. Um, pay attention to uh, the, the external environment. Um, in, in my case, that's you know, not only Congress, but what's happening at the White House and what's happening in executive agencies that are providing a direction. Um, get involved in, uh, from an academic standpoint, in programs, if you are interested in government, in programs that are seeking to encourage uh, talent in the federal government. I was lucky in that after graduate school, I was selected to be uh, a presidential management fellow. This got me into uh, the federal arena uh, with, a, with a great job at NASA, and it's been a, it's been a foundation of my entire career. And um, so those would, be, those would be some objectives. And the last would be network and, if possible, identify mentors uh, that can help you along the way. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend Government. My guest today is, has been Rob Everest. Rob, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. Aileen, it's been my pleasure, and I commend uh, your leadership uh, of this podcast as well as your very, very distinguished uh, uh, career in the federal IT space. It's been my pleasure. Well, thank you, Rob. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.